Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I'm Michael Lutz. <laughs> I'm looking at our show notes right now. Yeah. I, I'm reading through. It's very fluid. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a very, uh, you know, uh, well-written document so far. And then yeah. I get to a... A little bracketed section that I wrote that said, explain what the show is. And Michael, it appears that you've read, this is a great question. You've written, this is a great question. Yes, I I did put that. um, If only because, uh, I mean, to my understanding, this is a semi-informal discussion of um, a book that we have both read. That that's the yeah. broadest possible terms. I think yes. I think that that is the in in the the to give ourselves the the benefit of the broad broadest possible approach. Yeah. So so you know you and I we are both game studies academics to to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I did my master's exclusively on video games, and I've presented a lot of different video game conferences and talked about video games in a lot of different di- disciplines or in relationship to a lot of different disciplines. And, uh, you know, while I do a lot of writing around this whole internet, I don't really talk about the game studies core kind of stuff anymore. Uh, and I wanted to. Um, and so, you know, I said, Michael, do you want to do that? Because you are good. I am good. Yes. Well, I appreciated the offer because, I mean, as you say, we are both academics, but I am actually an early modernist by training or a Renaissance scholar, uh, depending on um, just sort of what terminology you use. So I talk about Shakespeare and things uh, for the most part, but also I have written um, a bit on games, uh, not as much as you, uh, obviously, because that was not my specialty. Uh, but one of the things that I try to do in a lot of my work is thread together sort of old-timey, um, like, early Renaissance uh, media theory in so much as there is a thing, and uh, sort of contemporary media theory, especially with debates about new media um, and how things kind of emerge and then vocabularies get developed for them and so on and so forth. And one of the sort of drums I've been beating for years at this point is that um, there's an almost sort of uncanny consonance between how uh, the theater especially emerges um, in uh, London in the uh, late 1500s and sort of a lot of uh, debates that go on around video games. Uh, And so I really appreciated this opportunity to really grab onto a lot of core texts that I've read, but I read like years ago when I still had time when I wasn't just a grad student. Um, And... I don't know, just become better acquainted with things under your extensive tutelage, I suppose, in a way. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in our co-tutelage, in, in the model of the best, you know, of the best, most uh, goodest graduate seminars. Yes. Um, which is the, the kind of hope, you know, the, that people out there in the audience who might be game studies students or people who are interested in game studies or people who are just out in the world thinking about games who might want to think alongside us um we want to invite that um and that's kind of what this is for i think right is to have kind of a broader conversation about these texts that are i might be a little bit closer to but not not as close as you might think um (laughs) i I certainly don't have like mastery of much of this stuff and and we're looking to do you know we're talking about jesper yule's book and, and just uh you know i'll intro that properly in a second but really you know kind of to give listeners the the broadest possible um kind of understanding of what we're after we we want to like look at things that are new, brand new in game studies we want to look at things that are 
undersided or underthought about. I have a lot of books from the late 1980s about games that I'm going to make uh, Michael read. It's going to be very <laughs> exciting. Uh, a lot of like stuff about Greek, uh, you know, Greek thought that got applied to games. But anyway, all of that is to say that um, we're going to try to do a really wide ranging and interesting set of readings and hopefully uh that'll be really valuable for everybody uh, alongside us because we're very selfish we, yeah we need this i mean i'm we really like everything i just said about like hoping to work with you like that's i really want to exploit you right i'm using you as an excuse to really just learn more about something now that i'm out of grad school mm, that's the that's the thing because you are a doctor of philosophy of yes literature yes literature english mm. literature there you go I'm not. I'm not anything. Uh, but one day. One day I'll be a full grown-up. One day. One day soon. But but yeah, I guess we'll, we'll dig right into it. Uh, today we're talking about um, Jesper Yule's book, Half Real. Um, it was released in 2005. Um, and this is, this is a big book. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we kind of talked a few weeks ago when we were initially kicking this idea around, like, you know, what do we start with? What do we, what begins this kind of journey? And, uh, you know, this seems like the one. Um, how did you interact with this book or hear about this book originally? Um, so 2005, probably not then. It was probably maybe a year or two after um, when I first started um, college as an undergrad. Uh, and my college was a very smaller liberal arts school didn't have a lot in the way of like people who would do game studies um but that sort of like being at college introduced me to academia um and i started like using library databases and trying to see what i could find about games because i was interested in them um and it was probably around 2007 or 2008 then that i would have uh pulled up um half real uh which i read then um remembered liking but also didn't really retain much because I spent the intervening uh, several years doing other things. So um, I just remember liking it. I remembered liking the. I remember really liking the title. I liked the idea of things being half real. Um, but so far as an introductory text, uh, I don't know. A lot of it didn't stick with me, and I don't know why that is. Yeah, I think we'll. I think we'll maybe parse some of that out in the discussion. Um, because I, I, I mean, I don't have, I didn't have that experience, like kind of self-directed learning around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly did. It was the kind of thing when I first became really interested in doing game studies in a serious way, which probably would have been like 2011, 2012, something like that, before I really became invested in like the academic uh, study of mm-hmm. video games. I've been in graduate school for so long, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a nightmare, but... Um, but point being is, you know, this this kind of became a book, and I think that the books I was reading at that time, uh, they were already response texts, right? So Half Real was kind of this weird specter that existed that was making these certain claims that people were either responding to or railing against or things like that. So I would say that I actually went quite a long time without ever reading it and knowing it exclusively by reputation. Um, and kind of the same thing with Jesper Yule as well. When I mm-hmm. first got involved in like games writing on the internet, he was still blogging quite a bit then. Um, and so he was this kind of like the academic guy who wrote these books and was also involved in games culture to some degree. But, yeah. But yeah. 
Wow, you have like a so- whole, there was like a whole social aspect to that that I just didn't have. Like I wasn't, like I did not give a damn about blogging. Oh, give a dang? I don't know. Are kids listening to this? What's our swear policy? We should have figured that out. <laughs> What's our swear? Uh, uh, I don't know. Like, like we'll, we'll do PG 13 swears. Okay. You get one, you get one F word per. <laughs> okay. If you, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to burn it then. But. Yes. But you can get one, I think, per episode, probably. All right, all right. So kids at home aren't uh, being taught bad examples. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. If they're getting deep into game studies, you've probably got a different kind of problem on your hands. So I guess we could just dig right into it. It's a technical book. Very much so. Is, is that fair to say? I don't, I don't yeah. even know what kind of... Like, what genre would you call this? I, I don't know. And actually, so... Uh, to respond to one of my sort of earlier like implicit questions, right? I think that's my that might be one of the reasons this didn't stick with me that much, um, apart from very very general uh, remembrances, because there is so much there's there's a dryness to it, um, and I don't know how I would describe that because uh, I mean he describes with just you know complete detail like what like multiple possible ways that a game of tic-tac-toe can go yes like does (laughs) multiple pages yeah of of diagram yes and it's like i it's weird because on the one hand i'm like it's it's sort of cool to see this kind of deep dive um and at the same time it's like yes i know what tic-tac-toe is maybe you didn't i guess maybe i I mean yeah i mean that's the weird thing that exact kind of dryness and the the scope right because like mm-hmm. i can i can recognize say cultural studies right so like we look at an object we look at its political economy context we look at what the the consumers are saying about it we look at the way it's marketed and that gives us like this bubble of content to view right mm-hmm. or like you know the new critical deep dive where you're just looking at the text and you're seeing that or like your historicism right when mm-hmm. Like, all of these methodologies I'm very, very comfortable with at this point. But this book is almost like structuralism, right? It's almost Mm -hmm. like this, let's find a meta model, a meta descriptive model for talking about how games in general work, right? And, like, tic-tac-toe becomes one of these operative examples. Right. (laughs) Trying to, like, parse through that. But, But, I mean... It, it's it's like you're saying it's dry but it also has like a grandeur to it to mm-hmm. it like the 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 hope that this book has in it to describe what is happening in the world is, is very big yes no I, that's actually something that i definitely didn't pick up on my first time reading it but i definitely saw now is kind of the 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 optimism that this that this book has for games uh which was refreshing actually as someone who has spent a lot of time being depressed lately (laughs) who would who would have thought that a a game studies book from 2005 yeah because in some ways he's trying to solve it right Right. he's he's trying to solve the issue um and and i guess i'm 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 scrolling through my notes here but like it it opens up so strong so this is on page one Mm -hmm. uh this is a quotation video games are real in that they consist of real rules with which players actually interact, and in that winning or losing a game is a real event. Right? So there's like this this notion of like uh, we treat games as if they're some other thing, but they're not. 
and we're having to negotiate their here-ness all the time. And so that gives him this like big definition where he says that uh, that games are made of, quote, real rules and fictional worlds. And then we spend mm-hmm. the next 200 pages like trying to figure out what that means. Yeah. No, and that's such a great phrase. Like That's such a beautiful phrase. It reminds me of... Um, uh, the the poem poetry by marianne moore are you familiar with this no hit me uh so marianne moore right um uh uh american poet operating in the first half of the 20th century um has this poem called uh poetry uh and it's basically this big meta poem about it's it's framed as a conversation that the speaker is having with someone about poetry and the first line is i too dislike it Right. So that tells you where we're kind of going. Um, Mm -hmm. But as the speaker sort of describes what poetry is by the end, it's like, oh, I hate it. But also here are all of the cool things poems can do. And sort of the one of the most famous phrases that comes out of this poem um, that she that well, she's sort of using it to be a kind of synecdoche for what poetry is. And uh, people carry that forward with um, either poetry or this is what imaginative literature is. She says poetry is poetry. imaginary gardens with real toads in them hmm right which is doesn't necessarily map very well onto what uh yule is saying here but it's that same kind of thinking right there's that kind of grandeur of idea of like real rule real rules and fictional worlds um there's this like uh this meeting happening here uh that feels very i guess uh potentially fruitful um yeah, and it generates some stakes too, right? Right. Um, that that there's, you, you know, for her, I mean, uh, it, it's this interesting kind of like um, audience and producer issue, right? Like there there's stakes into what art can grasp mm-hmm. at, at its very core. Um, and like ironically enough, Yule is dealing with you know the, a descriptive model that includes gambling within it, right? Like right, theoretically, <laughs> like real, you can really lose things uh, when you when you go and play a game. But in some ways, like the Marianne Moore poem that you're talking about, feels a little bit like it has more um, teeth to it to mm-hmm. some some degree, right? Like yeah, Yule still is able to have this kind of top down or, or zoomed out view uh, of the thing. And I think that's really interesting um, and, and kind of odd. It's a yeah. dispassionate book. Right. We, we, we've been using these words. But. In, in the introduction, I guess, like he lays out all of this stuff, like what, what the, the book is going for. And I think maybe rather than talk about it explicitly here, we'll just talk about it when we get there. But like I have in my notes here, um, his kind of uh, difference between games of emergence and games of progression mm-hmm. that I think are really interesting um he has like the narratology versus ludology debate that kind of gets staged here a little bit uh and he has this idea of the classic game model um and and of course like a lit review and his lit review is kind of common stuff um he talks about brian sutton smith he talks about roger calois he talks about johan huizinga i think people probably that will read those books um over the course of this podcast at some point those are all classics yeah they're all good um do you want to talk about the narratology versus ludology stuff just for members of the the listening public who don't uh, know what that is? Okay. Um, well, I'll see if I can, uh, you know, recap this in a way that uh, seems more or less fair. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, genu- genuinely, right? Yeah. I wasn't around yeah. for this. It's 2005, and there's, uh, there's a way in which, um, like, 
narratology versus ludology, even though these forces aren't settled, uh, like that debate is considered kind of maybe over in some way, or we've moved mm-hmm. past it. Um, but for those of you listening along at home, um, for uh, I want to say a long time, but really in retrospect, it was maybe probably like what a, a decade at most, if even that. Um, yeah. One of the primary debates that was going on in uh, game studies. Um, and especially as it pertains to uh, video game studies, uh, was this question of, uh, you know, what is what is the fundamental distinction of the game as as an object of study? Is it the uh, ways that games can tell stories um, in kind of these multimodal and interactive ways, um, which is your narratology stance? Uh, and then there's the opposing stance, which is no, what is defining about games is uh, the ways that they are based on certain premises, the ways that they have uh, rules that the players follow, and the action of the game is um, kind of this uh, complex behavior that emerges uh, between the player trying to navigate and master these various rules. Um, so it uh, really was a question of, um, in scholastic terms, right, or I should say academic terms, um, what do you kind of prize, quote unquote, in discussing a game? Are you going to talk about the game's story um, as a narrative? Or are you going to talk about uh, the game as a kind of um, interaction with a rule set, um, as you know, as something ludic in in the old sense? And and Yule says this is two thousand and five, right? Yeah. But Yule's Yule is saying, well, look, I've I've cracked it already. Like, <laughs> like this is not real. Don't worry about it. Yeah, um, I figured it out. Which is funny, right? Because when you hear, I mean, there are still people who are who are restaging the the ludology versus narratology to debate even today. Um, but even, I mean, this is you know thirteen years ago. He's saying, look, we we have fixed this already. And Gonzalo Frasca has a really great piece that's uh, about that it never happened like it, it's all post hoc like ludology oh, versus narratology didn't even exist to begin with which is um it's an it's is, an foundational myth of the discipline yeah basically yeah right yeah and that everyone is is using all of these words to say didn't even exist or it was already solved <laughs> um i just i think that's very funny but but yeah he kind of moves quickly i think uh through the introduction i think this is a really um like I said before, kind of like structural book, um, mm-hmm. right? Like the introduction gives you all the planks that are going to show up in the rest of the book. Um, and so maybe it's just better to look at this first chapter uh, called Video Games and the Classic Game Model. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about the classic game model? Um, so um, this is, I mean, this in some ways, I guess, belies more to more my like... Uh, own tendencies as a scholar but like when he comes out of the gate and he well not really comes out of the gate he works some time to build this up but when he says like here are the six things that make a make a game in the classical sense um i just really tuned out uh because i'm not going to memorize like six different things in order to identify like things that might be a game i don't know if i'm you know necessarily invested enough in where your argument's going to know that i am going to believe you on these points um so that's that's really like what happened to me i i was a little bit of a readerly brat here (laughs) uh it's a it's a strong self call out yeah um yeah i i think the same way i think that that 
the charitable read, and I think the intended read here, right, is that this is descriptive, mm-hmm. that this is, he's, you know, looked across the field of games, and he's looked at the game studies that have come before. This is kind of after his longer lit review thing. And he he's saying, look, th- these are just the things that are common to all of these definitions, and I, I'll read them really quickly, I guess. So yeah. number one is rules. Those are good. Yeah. Games are rule-based, he says. Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot. Um, he says, two, that they have a variable, quantifiable outcome. Um, the definition of this is games have variable, quantifiable outcomes. I love that. I love the, <laughs> the, the tautological uh, definition. He says, three, is that they have a valorization of outcome. So, you know, the idea that one outcome mm-hmm. is better than the other. I can brag uh, about my outcome and make fun of you for yours. Um, the fourth is player effort. I guess it just doesn't happen automatically. The fifth is that player is attached to the outcome. Mm-hmm. And then the sixth is that there are negotiable consequences. Um, and his illustration of that has to do with uh, like Roman gamblers who gamble themselves into slavery. Right. I thought that was a very uh, uh, specific kind of kind of thing. But but yeah, so like that's it. Right. Or it, well, maybe this is what people in the past, before Jesper Yule came along to correct it, this is what people thought games were. Right. Does that right. check out to you? Yes. No. And because that's the other thing that um, sort of you know underscores how much of a readerly brat that I am, um, because he does admit like here is my sort of survey. Right. Here are the things that um, I think define. Basically, like most of most of the games I can think of up until this point in history, and then he admits like something is changing, right? These are not sort of static. These uh, things can um, shift, uh, especially as we get into kind of electronic games, um, and uh, what that like what the power of computation represents for these sorts of things. Uh, I was very interested in the idea of negotiable consequences, right? The idea that these things. Um, uh, that they could have, could or could not have real life consequences, um, because that really does. I don't know. It pulls in a, a lot of, uh, well, dark things, like you said, uh, the the Romans um, going into slavery. But it also makes me think of like, uh, you know, gladiatorial combat and things like that. Yeah, the question uh, when you bring in the the negotiable outcome, the question of I mean, I've said the word political economy, I think, three times at this point, but of political economy <laughs> becomes important, right? Like, like there is a strong, there seems to be a strong divide to him, for him between, like, um, willfully entering into this and being forced into it. That seems to be, mm-hmm. uh, have, a, have a bright line in between it. But there is not a lot of room for talking about where coercion happens right. in this, right? Like, and when you get coerced into having negative outcomes and and the arena in which those negative outcomes uh, happen right so i'm thinking about um uh dean takahashi playing cuphead right Mm. if you remember that recently and he played cuphead badly right and the people made fun of him right so it seems to me to be you know there are negotiable consequences he recorded his footage he lost and then he you know got a massive pylon of hatred uh for it which is not exactly what Yule was saying, right? But it seems to be on a continuum of that point number six. Right. I don't know. I think it's an interesting 
uh, an interesting set of definitions that, that he spends a lot of time getting to just to say, well, actually. Well, actually, maybe. you know, once we have computers in the mix, uh, things get very, very different very quickly. Yeah. They do. Um, and so, yeah, he kind of walks through that. Um, and, yeah, I think I actually have. Hold on. I've got the... Uh, yeah, yeah. So he draws this really great graph, right? Oh, yeah. That is in this chapter, right? <laughs> so it's like an orange. Yeah. It's like the inside of an orange. So so if you have a physical book, uh, listeners, it's on page 44 if you have some sort of book. Yeah. Uh, it's on page 44. It's in a section titled uh games as objects and games as activities but yeah it's like it's like an orange Mm -hmm. with all its little slices and then there's like a big dotted line circle around it that (laughs) constitutes borderline cases and then after outside of that it's just not games yeah things that don't count in the model and i think it's interesting that he says that like the the critical not game uh faculty is introduced by the tabletop board game um, right, or the no, tabletop I, game, the role playing yeah, game, I guess. Yeah, that you actually mentioned in your notes that. Uh, well, I, you didn't mention in any particular way. You just put like three exclamation points by it that he discounts <laughs> yeah. tabletop games, um, or rather, he makes them borderline cases. And I was also very confused by that. Yeah, and I think I think it's just because I mean he kind of talks about it a little bit, but I think it's just because they are they they don't have a clear end point to them, but I don't right. know. Like if you like, you know, go back to 1978, you, <laughs> you know, we're four years into D and D at this point, you can go to Gen Con and you can play a very programmatic determined board game version of Dungeons and Dragons that does not have a lot of room for like DM intervention, which is kind of why he puts it in the borderline, right? Is right. That there's an external, arbitrary uh figure who's making decisions in that game but actually the way those games are written that that doesn't exist um i feel like i'm going to bring that up a lot over the course of this podcast i've been reading all of dungeon magazine <laughs> like gsr's thing and like basically yeah. everything not everything in game studies that we talk about these types of games but a lot of the kind of basic held information that we have is just not true uh, or at least it is substantially different or substantially different in tone than what we say. Um, and so, yeah, like hitting that, yeah, put those exclamation points in there by being like, well, actually, I've been reading a magazine <laughs> from 19, 1977 that, that proves you wrong. Yes, uh, Yule. But, but I see what he means. Um, and I think it probably is right in general. Then, of course, uh, then of course we get to Tic-Tac-Toe uh, and all the different possible places of... Uh, for tic-tac-toe to happen the kind of determinative game mm-hmm. and then we talk about rules we get to the chapter on rules which i think is uh is pretty good yeah as he as he puts it rules are the most consistent source of enjoyment in the playing of a game they are they are yeah this is a so this is a, a thing that is interesting about uh yes for um not as a scholar not just like as a person <laughs> Um, I don't know him, but I, I think I wrote this somewhere later in my notes too, but but he starts off the rules chapter with this. Um, he says, game rules are paradoxical. Rules and enjoyment may sound like quite different things, but rules are the most consistent source of player enjoyment in games, right? So, so uh, that, that whole sentence, I think, is, is important. The, especially the game rules are paradoxical thing. Um, 
Jesper Yule loves to talk about paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Um, in his book, The Art of Failure, he, he makes the argument that games themselves are paradoxical. He says that on one hand, we want to master them, we want to win. On the other hand, it is because we often do not win them that we're so interested in winning them. We go in them to fail most of the time, 99% right. of the time. Oh. And so he's like, well, that's a, that's a weird thing. <laughs> um, but and that's I'm interested in this label of paradox there because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't seem like a paradox to me. Um, it's not like yeah. a logical set of choices, right? Right. No, it's it's not right. Um, I mean, this is me being me, but sort of my first thought. Uh, so he says, you know, but rules are the most consistent choice of a player, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, he follows this up. And I think this is kind of interesting. We may associate rules with being barred from doing something we really want, but in games, we voluntarily submit to rules. Um, and like, you know, God forgive me, Cameron, but like, that's, that's pretty psychoanalytic, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I knew it. He right? even says barred, which is, which is, um, a pretty strong right? evocation but yeah it is very psychoanalytic do you want you want to talk a little bit more about what that means right so i mean um psychoanalysis i mean in in yule's terms right then in psychoanalysis every person is a paradox um mm-hmm. because one of the things that psychoanalysis tells us um and this is fairly constant throughout its various strains right but that um people have desires but we are estranged from our own desires uh by society or by language um we don't have a kind of immediate relationship to our object of desire uh and so in sort of its most classical sense for freud this is kind of like society imposes rules on the um on the animal that is the human being and we learn to kind of modulate um our desires to uh abstain from things um in order to receive greater um or more like socially appropriate gratification later and so on and so forth um but you know really what's psychoanalytic about uh this particular formulation that yule has here is the uh well, it's actually not even psychoanalytic, right? It's like missing the psychoanalytic point, which is that only by uh, obeying the rule do you get your pleasure, um, right? Only by obeying the rule do you enjoy whatever the consequence of the rule is. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, despite my uh, w- well-documented distaste for psychoanalysis, I must grant that this is in fact true, right? Like that this. Yeah, it just doesn't seem paradoxical to me. Like, even if you go to someone like Michel Foucault, right, that the the very notion of creating the limit and creating the structure of possible enjoyment up to that limit, the horizon line for a particular kind of experience, entertaining that limit is what gives us enjoyment of it, right? This is why, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the argument that Foucault makes about um, uh, the, like, mental health uh, establishments, the military uh, schooling, all of these different things. It, it's that the production of enjoyment and 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 uh, happiness within like a very refined structural system. So so yeah, to me that it, there's nothing paradoxical about it. it. Is in fact the way that everything functions. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the psychoanalytic point is essentially the same. Right. Like this is how we work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I find that just just like a really. It is a there's a good paper there's a good piece to be written somewhere about Jesper Yule's uh, uh, desire his desire <laughs> I'm using that very <laughs> very particularly to to call these things paradoxes right to mm-hmm. to see them as somehow in tension with one another when in fact they they seem to just be 
the thing, right? And even, you know, even if we don't want to, like, go to big paradigms, the very notion of, say, formal experimentation, right, where I'm making a, you know, Infocom-style adventure game and I, like, uh, you know, break the fourth wall or something like that, that seems to me to be the same impulse as game playing, right? And, and mm-hmm. a lot of people will describe this as play, um, especially, like, avant-garde modernism and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the you have to be on board with the claim, I think, like the basic parts of his claim to really like buy into this chapter or to buy into the way that he talks about rules in general, I think. Really? Say more about that. I mean, I just think that you have to, like, so for you and I, I think that we can look at the, like the claim about rules being paradoxical Mm -hmm. and we'll just be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is uncharitable, but but no. That's how it is. Like, there, there is nothing special here that is happening, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. And in there not being anything special, maybe games themselves are not very special. Maybe the question is not about half real. Maybe this is just real life. Oh, I like that. Right? Yeah. Which is, well, like, you know, this is going to be far down the road, um, both for us, but also, like, in the intellectual trajectory of this argument. But this is why gamification makes so much sense for people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like, gamification works because basic life under what maybe we can say late capitalism uh, or at least basic life in the contemporary era looks so much like a system of gamification a system of game Mm -hmm. it is ludic and then therefore it's easy to fold them together i definitely have thoughts about that when we get to the part on narrative there was a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that i was thinking about um with kind of like the the contemporary media ecology and the way that we treat uh fiction um is is kind of distinct from the way he seems to conceptualize fiction in the moment of this book but i'm getting ahead of us yeah yeah and i only i I mean i think the rules chapter is ultimately very good i think that if someone is interested in a deep dive of how rule systems interact with each other and like what the stakes of that happening are um i think this is a really great chapter at least to start with um Mm -hmm. there are a couple things here that i really liked though that i think are like really profound and and kind of don't depend on his basic claims about how rules work oh excuse me um sorry sorry you want to oh i was gonna say i um yeah no i mean for all these critiques we might leverage um i i liked the distinction um between games of progression and games of emergence um Mm -hmm. and then the subsequent sort of admission that like you know these are basically two polarities and most games exist somewhere in between these two states Yes, I love it. That yes, that's literally what I was going to bring up. I want to read the the line. Yes. So he says that there is a test that you can do to determine if a game is a game of progression or a game of emergence. And we'll talk about I guess what those are really briefly uh, after I read this. But he says, search for a guide to a game on the internet. Mm-hmm. Right. So you say you know I don't know Planescape Torment walkthrough or Planescape Torment guide. This is probably better. So you search for a game for a guide to a game on the internet. If the game guide is a walkthrough describing step by step what to do, it is a game of progression. If the game guide is a strategy guide describing rules of thumb for how to play, it is a game of emergence. So like games of uh, progression are linear, causally linear games. You know, this is a a Final Fantasy game, for right. example. It's a it's you, your classic adventure game. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, plot point by plot point you move through um and like any given roguelike is a game of emergence right caves of mm-hmm. cud is a game of emergence right yeah no i mean he talks about like i'm pretty sure he he uses this example but like pong is a game of emergence right 
mm-hmm. like something as simple as that because it's about sort of um this uh well basically right uh the progression um the progression model is you know you go through step by step and sort of there's possibly a plot or at least an escalating series of challenges uh whereas the game of um, emergence is a game of strategy because it's about a bunch of rules that are kind of thrown against each other and uh, you have to learn to navigate them all at once so having like the physics modeled in pong it makes that a game of emergence because even though there's just one thing you're doing in pong like the ball may be doing all sorts of things that you can't necessarily um, anticipate based on like what the walkthrough says yeah, I really enjoy teaching um, The King of Kong, the documentary about mm. Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell. Um, and that's kind of like the the core argument of, of that, the, at least the first half of that movie, is that we think of th- those kind of classic arcade games as like very structured and having, you know, I don't know, like uh, that there's a way to do it. But in mm-hmm. fact, what they say is like, no, it's just a set of best practices and you got to hope you get like a good barrel at the right time (laughs) um and that's just how it is right yeah um and so yeah i i think that that's a really useful and and it's really interesting too that you know he's looking at harvey smith blog posts from like 2001 talking about designing deus ex as a way of talking (laughs) about like emergent gameplay and all that kind of stuff which is fascinating to me right because we are still and i mean i myself have interviewed harvey smith and asked him these exact same questions basically um you know 20 years later not really but 15 years later right um and gosh i, I just gotta apologize to that guy the next time i talk to him to be like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> i did not realize that you had you know written these blog posts oh wow you know 15 years ago that you did all these um I, yeah uh, a couple other things i thought were really interesting in this uh chapter he has a really great great quote that i think is just like explanatory and helpful uh, he says, gameplay is not a mirror of the rules of a game, but a consequence of the game rules and the dispositions of the game players. Mm-hmm. I, I like think that, that is one of the, yeah, I do too. I think that is just like a, a beautiful and an elegant turn of phrase. I think that it's just so, it's a very helpful illustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you catch this like John von Neumann? Yes. In, in- yes. Uh, the John von Neumann story about... Um... <laughs> Like, is this apocryphal? Does does he fi- does he mention that? I don't know if this actually happened. I, I think this is in a book that von Neumann himself wrote. So I'm oh, assuming gosh. it's real. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. Gosh, you brought it up, and we have to talk about it now. But also, I can't remember because it's a math problem. It's mm-hmm. a story okay. problem. <laughs> I've got. I've, I've got it. I've got my book. Okay. okay good. Good. So okay. John von Neumann is at a cocktail party. And the following riddle is told. This is not a riddle, by the way. This <laughs> it's is a not math a riddle, problem. no. <laughs> this is just a math problem. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll get through this. <clears throat> Two children, a boy and a girl, were out riding their bikes yesterday, coming at each other from opposite directions. When they were exactly 20 miles apart, they began racing toward each other. The instant they started, a fly on the handlebar of the girl's bike also started flying toward the boy. As soon as it reached the handlebar of his bike, it turned and started back toward the girl. The fly flew back and forth in this way from handlebar to handlebar until the two bicycles met. Each bike moved at a constant speed of 10 miles an hour, and the swifter fly flew at a constant speed of 15 miles an hour. How much distance did the fly cover? So so do you remember what, what happens here? Uh, so 
uh von neumann like leaves or something right like he, i don't he like, rushes this is, out of the room right he okay he rushes out of the room which i remember being sort of confused by because this was like at a party but anyway i'm getting caught up in the <laughs> it's like i don't understand what party this is that someone's like hey famed mathematician john von neumann here's a riddle for you and then he leaves so he rushes out and the um uh person who told the the brain teaser i guess uh explains to everyone that uh the fly flies uh what is it 15 miles yeah yeah because it basically just flies the distance because what happens here is um the math is actually incredibly simple but it's told to you in such a way that it sounds way more complex than it is because it's just like i think it it's like the they're they meet like the kids are going to meet in an hour in the middle and the fly flies between them in that time or something like that yeah it it flies the full 10 miles between them and then five miles back basically right um and so uh yeah the person who has posed this riddle is like yeah, no, most of the time when I ask this to mathematicians, I guess, uh, they just get very, very confused. Um, and von Neumann, I guess, at this point comes back in, and he's like, you know, 15 miles. Um, and the guy explains, uh, you know, I I asked you this, good job, by the way, I asked you this because, you know, usually what happens is the mathematicians um, just start asking. Uh, make like they start making the sum of progressively smaller numbers right they start actually like modeling out like the physics of the back and forth when all they have to do is uh calculate the rates for these three different things um and von neumann is like but that's what i did (laughs) like he apparently just like rushed into the room and just added all of these infinitesimally smaller numbers together isn't this the most beautiful crystallization of this book (laughs) <laughs> like and i don't mean that sounds like kind of insulting i don't mean it that way but but like we we all intuit every day what a game is right yeah and like even when we play like very bordery like there's never a moment i'm playing dungeons and dragons or any of those games and i'm like oh, gosh i don't know you guys am i playing a game or not <laughs> like am, am i is, am i just having fun am i just doing <laughs> free play over here right or like tag or anything like that right like like these the things that one might assume would trouble us in a real way do not trouble us at all, right? right. We're able to, to kind of intuit them very quickly. And, and it is only through game studies' incredibly infinitesimal, you know, attention to minutia that we begin to even produce difficulty in this system. <laughs> and I, I love it. I, I, I love the anecdote. I love, like, what it lets you do, you know, how it allows you to think. It's good. Yeah. It is a good thing. Oh, it's rad. Um. Okay. Do you want to talk about fiction? I know. I know yeah. you're you're rip roaring ready to go. Oh man. Okay. So fiction. Um. Yeah. Actually. Um. It. Uh. It follows nicely from the anecdote about uh von Neumann, if only because that in of itself is a little a little story, a little narrative, and it actually demonstrates the problems of uh you know the the thing that is at stake here. Um the division between kind of like rules and narrative because as i said the the actual math in the problem is not at all difficult what is actually difficult is the way that it gets narratively presented um which i thought was interesting that this happens you know near the end of uh that chapter before we move into fiction where he says uh and this is sort of um 
not necessarily the opening salvo, right? Um, but one of the things that he wants to claim uh, about the importance of fiction in this context, which is that though rules can function independent of fiction, fiction depends on rules in games. So, um, for instance, like chess is uh, actually chess is not a good example. Checkers is a better example. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about we'll talk about the issue of chess later. Uh, but checkers is a good example because there's not there's no story to checkers. It's you know these abstract things that you're moving around, um, and those rules could have a story behind them, um, but not necess- But they do not need it. Uh, and then fiction, uh, he says, depends very much on rules. Um, did I have this bookmarked? I wanted to make sure. So unlike Cameron, I have a uh, electronic text, and I hate electronic texts all the time, forever. I can never navigate them as easily. At any way, at any rate, um, one of the things that uh, Jewel kind of does that addresses the earlier narratology ludology debate that I described. Um, he sort of, and again, uh, it's sort of surprising like how, how early he seems to have overcome this issue, where he says, you know, uh, rules and fiction um, complement each other, but their relationship is not symmetrical. Um, they compete for player attention, uh, but uh, in some ways, right, they are always necessarily reinforcing each other. Rules and fiction uh, are attractive, as he says, for opposite reasons. Um, and I thought this was a very interesting line of thought. This idea that rules and fiction are attractive for opposite reasons, I thought was extremely interesting. So um, one of the things that has been very important for Jewel um, about games and rules up until this point is that rules are very uh, rigid. Um, to talk about something that I mentioned earlier, right? Um, for Jewel, computers are extremely important um, in the history of games because uh, computers are just calculation machines that are really good at processing a lot of complex rules at once. And so in some ways, um, they have increased the power of uh, what we call uh, the, the rule machines that we call games. Um, yeah. Yeah, he even says, uh, not to interrupt, but he yeah, even no says problem. earlier... Um, in the rules section, he says that they're state machines. Um, yes, state machines. They're just literally a thing that stores value in time. Right. So rules are never uh, ambiguous, right? Rules are always negotiable. Like the, the chess piece is always at a particular location in the chessboard or it's been captured. Um, in Tetris, right, like the piece is falling with a particular velocity or speed or whatever, uh, and it will or it will not fit within uh, another sort of concatenation of Tetris blocks. Um, however, Jewel says, uh, fiction is interesting precisely because it is ambiguous, because it's uh, subjective, um, because it needs to be kind of supplemented by the player's imagination in a lot of ways. Um, and so... Again, we revisit this idea of paradox, uh, which we've already talked about quite a bit, that uh, the union of the game, um, or the union in the game, I should say, of rules and fiction is paradoxical, or rather, uh, Jewel uh, seems to be trying to um, set it up as a paradox in some mm-hmm. way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think that, I mean... The easier way to do this, right, and the way that I would think about it, and I think this is to to his credit as as like a thinker because he doesn't go for the easy route. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be like, look, you know, narrative, there is a biological, psychological, evo-psych, whatever, explanation <laughs> for narrative, which is that it is a way of organizing events in time so that we can respond to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that would be... That, that is a more prevalent psychological explanation. And I'm sure that you've seen this pop up in literary studies as well. Uh, it shows up in, in film studies quite a bit. And that that's like the least complicated version of this, right? Mm-hmm. But what he's saying is like that, that he seems to be interested in co-production. Mm-hmm. How do subjects get produced out of narrative? How do narratives get produced out of rule sets? And what is the negotiation and set of frictions that exist that do that kind of co-production? Um, and I don't know if he, I don't know if he delivers on that, you know, like, I don't know if I, I have a sense at the end, like why this stuff happens. Um, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't like there's, there's actually, so one of the points that gets made kind of in the broader book, um, that I think is very interesting is the suggestion that narrative games are, um, indicative of some sort of sea change in like how we as, uh, a society sort of think of games right the this um capacity for games to kind of have narratives um affixed to them or to have narratives grow out of them um in the way that they are is is relatively new and is at least partly attributable to the rise of uh, computer gaming mm-hmm. um so i think that is uh, a, an interesting sort of suggestion um and at the same time it results in this weird problem where he talks about um now i actually agree with him on this point right when he talks about coherent uh does he call them coherent narratives or coherent worlds i can't remember exactly now yeah he produces like all of these not not quite rules but like features right right um or like it's a typology i guess so he says there are abstract games iconic games incoherent world games coherent world games and staged games right yeah and so like sorry go ahead I was gonna say, yeah, no, that's a that's a good typology, I think, for most purposes. Um, but uh, what interested me the most was uh, the the move to incoherent world games, incoherent world games. Um, not that I don't think that there is a distinction that could potentially be made there, uh, and I should probably uh, you know explain what uh, either of these are. So for Yule. Well, first of all, just to resume a point, right, narratives are always incomplete, right? This is like mm-hmm. basic uh, narrative study, um, just for anyone listening along at home, right? There's uh, a lot of stuff that comes out of this, reader response theory and so on and so forth. But, you know, no matter how many times you read Macbeth, you will never know how many children Lady Macbeth has. This is kind of the classic example, Um because like that information is just not in the text, right? The world that the text uh, projects with its fiction is incomplete. So this incompletion, or rather this incompleteness, I should say, um, of narrative when it transfers over to games uh, takes on this very interesting mutation where um, the world can become incoherent, uh, as Yule puts it, uh, because, and this is how he phrases it, the game contradicts itself or prevents the player from imagining a complete fictional world. Now, how this is important for games, in the example he gives is Donkey Kong, is that you cannot explain in terms of kind of like a narrative fiction why Mario has three lives. Uh, yeah, that there's is there... nothing in there. 
right? There's it's it's not the same as like Lady Macbeth's children, where the information is just not in the text. Um, because to some extent, right, you can get through the entirety of Macbeth without even asking that question or wondering about it. Um, but when you are playing Donkey Kong, uh, Mario has three lives, and that is super important. But also, if you tell the story of Donkey Kong, there is no reason for Mario to come back to life. <laughs> like, Mario does not... Uh, actually, he, he says something like this. I think I have it in my notes. He phrases it... Uh, it's one of those things that happens when you're writing about games. Um, Mario is not reincarnated or something like that. <laughs> I, that yes, that sounds right. right. Right, he says, like, Mario is not reincarnated, but the player has three Marios. Um, <laughs> Great, of course. Right. Um, so for, for Yule, like, a game, uh, a game's fictional world is incoherent um, when it, as he puts it, contradicts itself. Or in other words when you have to explain something that happens in the game but you can't explain it in terms of a story it can only be explained um in terms of a mechanic or like that's just how the game is played essentially um and i guess a coherent game would be a game that doesn't make you ask those questions but i'm not sure what that would look like first of all um and second of all I am not sure that I like the choice of incoherent and coherent, even though uh, Yule says, you know, like, coherency is not the point. I feel like those terms are kind of uh, very, very evaluative, um, or rather they default to the evaluative in the opposite way of what he is intending here. Yeah, there's a weird thing that happens, right? Like, I, I, I think that... I think they're interesting terms, if only because they give us purchase on some like other weird stuff that happens in games culture. Mm-hmm. So, are, are you familiar with the like the Half Life theory that says that that like every time that Freeman dies, it's the same Freeman in his mind, and like, uh, that's what's going on in Half Life. I'm not sure. So, <laughs> this if, like, doesn't Freeman... sound terribly familiar. So, so there's like this, you know, internet forum theory or whatever mm-hmm. that that the reason like the G-Man exists and all that kind of stuff in the Half-Life universe is that uh, every time that Freeman dies and you reload the game, Freeman remembers all that in the same way that you remember all of that. Mm-hmm. And so like this flattening effect is narratively justified. So the saving and loading mechanic becomes, for in Yule's terminology, it becomes coherent in that way, right? Right. Um, and in the same way, I guess, that like near Automata tries to do some of that. Um but but that even even these things that approach that mm-hmm. a I agree with you it, it it the terms themselves invite um, evaluation but even the games that do that do it impartially like it's I I can't think of anything that is a fully coherent game right and that was sort of what I was thinking where it was like I don't think I think this is like a problem of media right like arguably there's no such thing as like a fully coherent book because you know you're reading a book right the fictional world projected by a book or like that sort of narrative i like i i am hard pressed to think of an example where you could have like a presentation of something that does not refer to kind of like its own mediated circumstances at least indirectly am i making yeah. sense <laughs> no 100 okay I mean, his, his example for the coherent world like the, to justify it conceptually is adventure games, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the logic of that is like you're playing Maniac Mansion. Everything that is in that world is visible to you. All the character motiva- motivations are visible to you. They don't have a life outside of this context. 
um, you could exhaust yourself, right? You could do like the Roland Bart kind of thing, like the SZ thing of <laughs> exhaustively describing every single piece of minutia in that world. Um, but even that feels like I agree. It's a media problem, right? Like right. Uh, classical Hollywood cinema had us imagine and, and interact with a space as if it was fully coherent and in front of us. And we've spent 70 years deconstructing how that actually happened. Right. It was in fact completely incoherent, but it felt real. Right. Right. Uh, and it's really weird for him to be so structural and so interested in like pulling these things apart and then to kind of grant that right at, at face value. Right. Right. No, it was, it was very, very strange. Um, and then one of the other things uh, that he says is that I thought was really interesting. And this is, picks up something that I said earlier, where I think in some ways his, his thinking of narrative feels almost, almost quaint or rather the, the way that people, I think generally interact with narrative feels almost quaint um, because he says the, one of the differences between narrative in games and uh, narrative in other media uh, is that skill, some amount of skill is usually required to access parts of a game um, sort of first and foremost. Um, and that um, second of all, in games, you can like quote unquote play a game, right? In a video game, especially without having seen all of the content within it, right? There could be branching paths or like, you know, areas you didn't do or something like that. Um, whereas he kind of alleges that movies and films, um, in movies and films, we uh, see, and he, I'm quoting him here, all the material that presents the fictional world of the story, right? Like this idea that you see a film and um, and you see everything. Uh, and I'm not, like, I don't want to quibble here and be like, oh, he's not accounting for, like, you know, re-watching and so on and so forth. But I'm also thinking of uh, what you just talked about with that weird half-life theory and how, on the one hand, that seems like, yes, this is what games do, right? In fact, this uh, whole sort of clash between... Um, the incoherent world and the idea of a fiction, right, as a representation of a world that people, quote unquote, inhabit, um, is like this huge source of like internet humor now, right? Like Mega 64 um, or whatever, where people just sort of like enact like the mechanics of a game in public spaces, yeah, right? Yeah. Or like, how weird would it be if, I don't know, Mario did something. I, you know, you you know exactly what I'm talking about, though. If like, Mario the, was dead the whole time. If Mario was dead the whole time, or like, what's Mario doing with all those coins? Oh, mm -hmm. he just has like a bunch of coins at home. Like, this this desire to like delve into these um, hidden or occluded spaces in games uh, is just as common now, I think, at least um, in in the way that we approach film. If if the friggin' YouTube thumbnail recommendations or any in indication, right? Um, and this maybe ties in with what you were saying about the way that, uh, you know, we took to gamification like a fish takes to water in a way, right? Yeah. Like there's a, a way that like our narratives are becoming gamified because uh, we're expecting them now to kind of like challenge us. Uh, we want to watch something like Lost that we have to puzzle together even though there's maybe really nothing there. Or we want to uh, find out that we missed so many details in Harry Potter that mean that there's like this very subtle development happening in the background the entire time. Um, we want to feel like there's some sort of uh, skill element in in uh, resolving narrative uh, that I just think is a, is a very like 
2018, maybe since like 2015, 2016 um, kind of attitude uh, that is being almost eerily accurately described uh, in the way that he's talking about games here and the relationship between games and narrative. Yeah, there's absolutely a... I mean, people talk about um, uh, puzzle cinema, game mm-hmm. cinema, so, you know, memento, that kind of right. thing, uh, as a movement that happens, you um, primer, upstream color, those kinds mm-hmm. of movies, uh, which, right, pull the problem-solving kind of stuff out of film noir and then implant it into more traditional or, or more mainstreamy kind of aesthetics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about stuff, too, that, like, there's a world in which Jesper Yule in the late 1990s becomes fascinated with Twin Peaks, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess is watching it on VHS tapes or something, and that radically, that gives him just a huge, um, I don't know, potential source to look at. Or like, who shot JR, right? right? There are a lot of moments that happen in the history of film and television that seem to fit very neatly within a, uh, a game studies, within the remit largely of what mm-hmm. game studies can help explain. And I agree with you. I think that that has become more prevalent as a fan practice, but only more prevalent because the democratization, and I'm putting that in, in air quotation, but the uh, wider accessibility, maybe it's a more, more appropriate thing of video capture, screen capture, audio recording, mm-hmm. all those different things. Like people were doing these things. Talk to any television studies scholar and they're going to tell you that people have been doing these things for 40 years, aggressively doing these things. Uh, but now they can like yell at you about it on the internet <laughs> <laughs> and, and get demonetized for doing so. Um, but stuff. yeah, I think that's a really good, I think that there's, I, I'd be surprised if someone has not picked this book up to do that with it, mm-hmm. but also I have not seen that. So I don't know. Someone yeah. should. Yeah. It's a good paper. If you're an undergraduate listening to this, or if you're a graduate student, you should write that paper and send yeah. it to us. Let us know. Mm-hmm. You can have it for free right now. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I've talked quite a bit about fiction, I think, uh, but he sort of uh, ends this um, with a discussion of uh, another thing that I don't think uh, holds particularly true now, maybe, Um but uh, sort of this problem of uh, narrative as having sort of a set end, um, usually one set end in its most traditional kind of conception, um, and sort of a player desire for like either multiple outcomes or at least a desirable outcome. And this is where he talks about Hamlet, right? He says that Hamlet can't really uh, function as a game um, because uh, the sort of overall goal, as he puts it, is to like attempt to avenge your father's death and then... Uh, fail and die right which is just when you sit down to play a game um that we tend to associate game the the fiction of games at least with kind of these power fantasies of solving problems and progress and and ever forward movement um you know the the game does not really host the kind of tragic narrative uh very well which granted um having having written on hamlet games a lot of them uh do not really uh take I guess uh, fidelity as a key virtue in their adaptation. Um, most of the time, it's about like messing with the plot rather than actually trying to fulfill the plot. Do you think this is this is a kind of a side thing? But do you think that the interruptibility of that narrative has to do with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Um, that, like it's built in already to like the Shakespearean kind of stuff. Um, let's see. That's an interesting question. I would say 
so I mean I think a lot of uh, Shakespeare's plays, particularly the tragedies, um, invite this kind of thinking um, because so many of them are about sort of like these just happenstance miscommunications, right? Like the letter just doesn't get to the right person in time and then Lear and Cordelia are dead. Or like someone just doesn't like make Othello look in the right direction when Iago is messing with him. Um, But I also think that um, Hamlet, and this is something that actually I um, have written about with my co-author Matthew Harrison in the piece that we wrote on Hamlet games, um, Hamlet, more so than these other plays that I've mentioned, uh, sort of um, dramatizes or thematizes uh, this issue of agency and action and delay and sort of one of the biggest um, kind of like, quote unquote, vulgar readings of Hamlet is that, you know, he, he learns in the first act what he's supposed to do, right? The ghost shows up, says, hey, your uncle killed me. You need to do revenge. Um, and then he spends the next like three and a half hours thinking like, should I really do that? Um, well a ghost told me to so right uh and one of the things that happens in hamlet games especially is there's this fantasy of um being able to step into this plot and just like being like yes hamlet do it right like kill him like the the ghost told you like do it make this end and i think um rosencrantz and guildenstern plays into that um a little bit as well if only because uh so much of that play is about them waiting for hamlet to move that plot forward Mm -hmm. um in some ways they mirror a kind of historical audience response can i tell you that there's a game that solved this problem that that took the yulian issue by by the horns and solved it Oh, yes, please tell me. What was that it? That game is Halo Reach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm my gosh. Kidding. I'm laughing, but also you're right. Yeah. We know <laughs> at the very beginning of that that they will all be dead. And it creates a all the same normal Halo moments of like rising and falling action and, you know, challenge, all that kind of stuff. All the things that he said would be very difficult to do. Does it perfectly. A plus video game. Wow. I had totally forgotten... Wow. I know. I thank you for reminding me of Halo Reach. It's a good game. Yeah. I had not even really conceptualized it in those terms, but you're absolutely correct. Good job Halo Reach. Yeah, great great work over there everybody. Yeah, <laughs> on Halo Reach. Yeah. Uh, um, you solved the Hamlet issue. Yeah. Um but also, so anyway, like he talks about Hamlet, we talked about Hamlet, and then he also uh, sort of uh ends with um a couple of things. He talks about the issue of time in narrative, um, which he connects to the issue of uh, story and discourse, which are terms that he borrows from uh, classical narratology, though I don't know if he actually frames them in that in that way. Um, but one of the problems that Jewel highlights is that uh, when you talk about a story in, say, a novel, um, you could say like, oh, this narrative, right? The, the narrative itself takes place over the course of like, you know, such, so much of a span of a character's life or the character's lives. Um, and when you read that book, right, there's a certain amount of time it takes you to read it, but that doesn't really impact um, sort of your experience of the narrative as such. However, because of the way that games are structured in something like say Grand Theft Auto, um, there is a story that takes place presumably over a, a certain number of days, but also for an infinite amount of time in between story beats, um, you could rack up like 30 hours of gameplay uh, just messing around. And so uh, 
there is this introduced problem of the story as the game kind of would tell it uh, as a sequence of events and then story as um well he calls it story time versus playtime right story time as the the narrative sequence of events and uh playtime as the amount of time that the player spends playing the game and he says story um is equivalent to story time that is to say that is uh the sequence of events and then discourse is uh what he thinks of as the playtime uh which I thought was very interesting that he pulled that out of uh, narratology. Yeah, it's an interesting... I don't really know what... I don't know what this buys the book. Right. Like, what this reformation or reconceptualization of the way that time works is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just don't know. Because, like you're saying, either A, you can go to the poetics and you can pull it out, right? You can go to straight up Aristotle or like the derivations out of Aristotle to get this kind of information. And and even, or stranger enough, I don't even know, like I was not taught this terminology in thinking about time and film, right? Mm-hmm. My, my I do a lot of game studies and, you know, I wrote my master's and a chunk of my dissertation on games, but like I'm formally trained in film studies and media studies. And we would more often talk about diegetic time versus non-diegetic time, um, Mm. which gets you away from like linearity and questions of that, right? You're very rarely talking about a whole film anyway. You're going to talk about scenes. You're going to talk about, um, or, uh, you know, a string of shots even, um, where, you know, especially in contemporary film, those time itself is, is intermingled in single scenes and single you know, sequences of shots themselves. Um, so in some ways we've, we've, I, or at least I feel like we've bumped away from that um, right. a little bit, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what this buys the, the book in the end. Right. Actually. So can I read something from your notes? Because I really liked this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So something that Cameron, we, he shared his notes with me. Um, something that Cameron wrote uh is that it almost reads as if narrative is a byproduct here, a kind of industrial runoff model that pollutes the mind after the chemical process of rules and fictional world happens. Um, Which I think is a really great way of putting it, because that's sort of what ends up happening um, in this kind of argument, is uh, narrative becomes like the way that a player would describe the game to someone else, um, rather than something that happens with the player playing the game, am I am I interpreting your your note there correctly? Yeah, yeah, right. That, it, that it's just uh, that narrative is the thing that happens, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I can't think, I can't remember what the Hemingway quote about sex is, but there's something like that <laughs> that's very similar, right? Uh, yeah. It's you know, it's the thing that happens when the lights are off or something yes. like that. Um. <laughs> um yeah, no. So I thought that was interesting, and I also and it, I come at this again from uh, not a film perspective, but a literature one. And narratology in literature, of course, is very different than it would be anywhere. Uh, but one of the things that happens in literature is that um, the story is, of course, the linear narrative. So it would be, uh, you know, the like one morning the king died, right, and uh, everyone was sad, and then his son was visited by the king's ghost. Uh, and he had to be revenged, right? That would be the story. That's the story of Hamlet. Um, But the discourse is the way the story is told um, in, in like, 
whatever text you're reading it. So like in, in literary narratology, the, the simplest definition of a narrative is um, the like way a particular story is told within discourse. Right. So uh, like, you know, the fact that Jane Austen writes in free and direct discourse is a method of presenting a story that could have been told otherwise. Um, And I'm not sure what to make of of that kind of carry or if if I could make any sort of carryover into the study of games, Um, if only because uh, uh. I'm not sure if discourse is the best idea or is like the best word, right? I'm not sure if that's a thing that uh, accurately describes what he's talking about. Well, I think that actually takes us into the last chapter. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is trying to like staple these two things together. Like mm-hmm. the, this concept of fiction that he set up and then his kind of strict definition of rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, he's trying to get at like what that friction produces in a real way. And I think that, that, like outside of this book, what it produces is like the more traditional kind of cultural studies understanding of discourse, right? Which mm-hmm. is the one that you're kind of getting to when you're talking about narrative, like mm-hmm. that there is a norm, a normative set of assumptions that get produced around any given text and that circulates and that gets, you know, uh, reinterpreted by fans and that gets uh, augmented and then, uh, additional context comes out, right? You know, anything, imagine everything that has ever happened around Harry Potter. Like that's what occurs, <laughs> right? With real narratives. Right. Um, and so like one would assume that, that we would, that you would have to talk about that, right? That like mm-hmm. when the rules, the paradox of rules smashes up against these fictional worlds and produces some sort of thing, gameplay itself right the experience of game that we would have to talk about the culture that gets produced there Mm -hmm. but that's not what gets produced at the end of this book right no (laughs) (laughs) and and i don't i don't i i'm you know we were talking about this before we started recording but i actually don't know what is produced at the end of this book i think we have two really good diagnostic tools in the the rule chapter in the fiction chapter but i really don't know what the the oomph is here in chapter five right um yeah no chapter five like he has this sort of interesting idea like he takes on this idea of simulation and basically one of his arguments is like um how did i put this in my notes uh um essentially like what game uh what games do uh is they metaphorize uh various actions that the characters undertake right uh and i like that idea right this idea that um in narrative games you have characters or actors of some kind right in a in a story or a plot or in a world um and they have certain actions that they will take or could take or want to take and you interact with various rule sets that in some way uh are serve as kind of a metaphorical uh stand in for those characters doing those things like sort of like taking on their role um and i like that idea but also like i don't know where to go from there 
Yeah, there is some sort of like flattening effect, right? That, which is what you're demonstrating, Jordan. And I'm, I'm actually looking in the book here, right, where he's talking about because uh, his pitch at the opening of this chapter is like, now we can finally, with the tool, the rule set, or the tool set, rather, ooh, <laughs> what a slip. <laughs> um, but with the tool set I have established, w- we can figure out what games mean. Mm-hmm. And like, one plank of that argument is is what you're pointing out here, right? This sort of like metaphorism that ends up uh, implanting the player. When the rules smash up against the fictional worlds, that implants something in the player, right. and it produces something. And then he's like kind of talking about like different ways that might happen. And so he talks about the Ten Commandments, like the film. <laughs> he talks about American Psycho, and he's talking about like different ways other media are doing it. Um. And then, uh, uh, like, like I am familiar with media effects arguments from across right. a, across a lot of different time periods, lost, uh, around a lot of different mediums, right? Like, you know, I have mm-hmm. an an undergraduate degree in in literature. I've read all that like eighteenth and nineteenth century pamphlet texts about how bad novels are. I get right. it. Like, I know what's up. I'm reading the contemporary stuff too. <laughs> and in some ways, this it feels like such an elaborate and, and great system to then just produce that, like the basic insights of media effects. Right. And one line he has, um, focusing exclusively on coherent worlds and well-formed storytelling is a misunderstanding of what games are about. Well, okay, but then what? Yeah, the, it's incoherent worlds that we are like, paddling our way through but but it relies too on that like problem of uh of like paradox right that he sees Mm -hmm. these things as like being formally difficult to parse through when when they're not Mm -hmm. i don't yeah i don't know i you know i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to end this spot like like this reading of the book on a downer but i really do struggle to see like what the that pitch is at the end yeah no i mean i i felt very similar that uh you know i don't feel like this book necessarily uh fulfills its uh promise of of uh, really showing us how rules in fiction interact or like sort of what the upshot of that might be it just kind of says well it it's happening it could be happening yes um and it I depends guess, on what game you're playing. Like I literally this this past week, I taught his Casual Revolution book. Mm-hmm. It's about the 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 Wii. Broadly, it's about a lot of different things, but really, um, the kind of central object is the Wii. And I'm reading here at the very end. He he kind of has a list of like the takeaways, basically like a bullet point list, mm-hmm. a set of conventions regarding rules. And what strikes me as interesting is that a lot of these he's written whole books on these planks. Um, so like one, he says, uh, the player, so it's this metaphorization that you're talking about. The player's real world actions have a metaphorical relationship to the fictional in-game action. Pressing of a controller button at the right time means making a perfect serve. And the argument of the Wii book of the uh, casual revolution is that we have bridged that gap. And now there are all kinds of like effects on the game industry and design principles because of that. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's that this is the the opening salvo of you know his research trajectory hmm. for the next 10 years right leaning more into kind of the the kinetic aspect of the game yeah 
I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing what other people have to say about it. Let us know if you yeah. if you have a, a big oomph at the end. I I do I will say he has like this very brief conclusion um, that there's almost nothing really to say about, uh, but he has this really nice line where he says that um, in a game uh, the game is about because he's talking about uh, the fact that uh, the fictional worlds projected by games are often like or rather not often but like they don't necessarily have to be um sort of glamorous right you can have games that are it's something like a farming sim like harvest moon that's like a game about working hard uh and doing lots of chores uh he doesn't use harvest moon i don't know what exactly uh term that he uses but um he says uh one of the things that happens in games is that what becomes um sort of the focus is quote the beauty of the activity itself Mm -hmm. um which I do think is a very kind of like nice line, and I think maybe uh, provides some more support for what you were saying that this comes uh, as an opening salvo to what he's going to start talking about with the Wii, uh, in the way that that uh, emphasized so many uh, different sorts of activities that could be modeled with motion controls. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's the first episode of oh Game Studies Study Buddy. Whoa, I can't even... Bleh, I can't get it out. Game studies, study buddies. There we go. I gotta do the tonal shift. Game studies, study buddies. Study buddies. Uh, this the show is brought to you by Range Touch. You can go to rangetouch.com and check that out. Uh, Twitch.com slash rangetouch. Uh, and then youtube.com slash rangetouch as well. Um, for all the other cool stuff that we do. Um, yeah, I don't, I think our next book, what did we decide? What did we decide was our next book? Uh, Ready Player Two. Yeah. yeah by she, Shira Chess. Yeah, I think that is. This will probably come out, I don't know, we haven't settled on a schedule yet, but yeah. a couple weeks from now, some weeks from now. <laughs> Sometime <laughs> after you are hearing this. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll have decided that before it comes out. Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me most of the time on Twitter. I am at sign Warren is dead. Um, and I also have a website at correlatedcontents.com. And are you still running your Patreon? Uh, I do have a Patreon, but it is currently defunct as I am, uh, busy doing my nine to five. <laughs> mm, busy. Uh, yeah. Thing. Um, and you can find me at uh, twitter.com slash ccunzelman. Um, and you can follow Ranged Touch as well at uh, twitter.com slash ranged touch. All of this stuff will be down in the show notes below this somewhere. And of course, our theme song is provided by Chris Hunt. So you can find us. Uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, do you have any closing remarks that you want to you want to you want to try the catchphrase? I've been I've been trying to think like what would our sign off be? What is our sign off going to be for this? Um, and all I can think is just game on from uh, Wayne's World, where they're playing hockey in the street and they keep having to move the net. So game on, everyone out there in podcast land. Game on. Mm. It's good. <laughs>